Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to Tiny Vampires, a podcast about disease, science, and blood-sucking insects. A member of the Agora Podcast Network. Episode 27. Does collecting firewood from a forest change the Lyme disease risk? I'm Raven Forest Riscalzo, your host. I have an exciting announcement. I'm all moved in here in Chicago and just started work at my new position. I'm working with Emily Grassley at the Field Museum as a content developer on the BrainScoop YouTube channel and on her podcast, Explore a Story. If you haven't seen it yet, it's a great place to learn about science and all of the things happening behind the scenes at museums around the world. I'm super excited to be getting to work on such a well-established program. I'm going to learn a lot from Emily, so you can look forward to Tiny Vampires getting even better. Also, thanks to Raquel, my move didn't impact the Tiny Vampire schedule too much, so a big thank you to her for that. So this topic was suggested by Ben Snow of Biosphere Solutions during my trip to Harvard for the Sound Education Conference. He wants to know if he's increasing or decreasing his likelihood of getting Lyme disease when he collects fallen logs from the forest. Of course, going into the woods increases your risk of getting Lyme disease, but let's assume that he's wearing bug repellent and tucking his pants into his socks and all of those good things people do to keep the ticks out. Is just the act of removing fallen logs from the ecosystem something that can actually change a tick's likelihood of having the Borrelia burgdorferi bacteria that causes Lyme disease? It seems like a strange question on its face, but let's explore the ecology and the life cycle of Lyme disease. The deer tick that transmits Lyme is born in the summer, and they are small. I mean, super tiny. These larvae are about half the size of a poppy seed, and only have three pairs of legs. 
During this stage of their life, they mostly feed on the blood of mice and birds. They aren't active in the winter. Then, in the spring, they molt into nymphs, which is when they get their fourth pair of legs. During this time, they're not picky about their food source, feeding on small animals like rodents and birds, or bigger animals like deer, dogs, and people. In the fall, they molt into adults. This is mostly when they're looking for the big hosts, like deer and humans. They lay their eggs in the spring, and then the whole cycle starts over again. Most deer ticks that are biting people are around two years old. Whether a tick ends up with lime or not depends on what animal they're feeding on while they're in these younger stages of larvae and nymph. About 40 to 90% of larval ticks pick up lime by feeding on white-footed mice. For whatever reason, these particular mice not only have very high infection rates with Borrelia burgdorferi, but are also very good at passing it on to the ticks that bite them. Inside these mice, the bacteria lives, grows, and multiplies. When an animal fills this role for any disease, it's called a reservoir host. For example, the reservoir host of rabies are raccoons, skunks, and foxes. Because white-footed mice are so good at transmitting Lyme disease to ticks, their numbers and their health are an important indicator for the amount of Lyme disease being transmitted to humans in a specific area. In fact, mice are so important to transmission of Lyme, there's a proposal to genetically modify them to be immune to the Borrelia burgdorferi bacteria on some islands. Let's dive into this a little deeper. Say we have 100 ticks, and there are enough mice for all of the ticks to feed on them just fine. At a 90% infection transmission rate, we end up with 90 ticks infected with Lyme disease. A person walking through the woods has a much higher chance of getting bit by an infected tick than an uninfected one. On the other hand, if we had the same 100 ticks, and there were only a few mice for the ticks to feed on, the ticks would bite birds or armadillos or whatever was available. These other animals aren't as good at transmitting the Borrelia bacteria to the ticks. So, say, only 20 of these 100 ticks become infected. Even though there are the same number of ticks, the chances of someone getting bit by one and catching Lyme disease is much lower. This is why the population size of white-footed mice is so important. But how does that relate to collecting firewood? Well, there's two ways this might happen. First, fallen logs can serve as homes for mice, as well as providing homes and food for, for the insects that the mice eat. On the other hand, these logs could be providing hiding places and homes for animals that eat mice, like snakes and weasels. That brings us to today's paper. 
Response of white-footed mice to coarse woody debris and microsite use in southern Appalachian treefall gaps by Catherine Greenberg in 2002. Greenberg was given the perfect opportunity to answer this question when Hurricane Opal hit North Carolina. This storm had winds of 150 miles per hour, or 241 kilometers per hour. Trees all over the Bent Creek Experimental Forest were knocked down, creating the perfect experimental conditions. She chose 11 locations in this forest. Some had blown down trees that were left in place, and some had blown down trees that were removed by what's called salvage logging, and some sites where no trees were blown down were used as controls. She set up a grid of mouse traps baited with rolled oats. These traps are the type often used by scientists. They're long metal boxes with a trigger on the floor. When the mouse enters to get to the food in the box, it closes, leaving the mouse inside and unharmed. Each morning, when the traps were collected, the rodents inside were identified. Sex was determined. They were measured and weighed, and females were examined to see if they were pregnant. All of these measures are important because it's not only important to see if the mice were there, but also to see how healthy the population is and if they're happily making more baby mice. After their examination, the mice were tagged and released back into the wild. This work went on from 1996, the year of the hurricane, to 1999. Mouse population undergo pretty wild swings from year to year, so it was important for them to keep the work going from year to year. Over the course of this time, there were 141 mice captured 310 times. In the end, Greenberg found that there were no differences between the sites. While traps near fallen trees did catch more mice than those that weren't, they didn't actually change the total number of mice in each site. The mice with and without fallen logs to hide under or eat termites out of were just as healthy and had just as many babies. Other studies showed that one of the most significant factors in the number of white-footed mice living in an area are the number of acorns the trees that year were producing, which I guess goes along with common wisdom about mice. As long as they have food, they can survive just about anything and just about anywhere. Although this study tells us a lot about white-footed mice, and how their population isn't really impacted when fallen wood is collected or not. It only gives us an indirect view on what might be happening with Lyme disease in the area. Greenberg wasn't conducting her study to learn more about Lyme disease transmission. She wanted to know how salvage logging impacts wildlife, so she wasn't taking blood samples from the mice that she was catching to see if they were infected with Borrelia burgdorferi or not. Knowing that the population size stayed the same 
regardless of salvage logging, gives us a clue that the infection rate of ticks should stay the same too. But we don't really know for sure and conducts those blood tests to see. For now, Ben, you can gather firewood to your heart's content, knowing that it most likely won't be changing anything about Lyme disease prevalence in your area. But keep an eye on the science, because there's a chance that we're going to change that recommendation based on new research looking explicitly at the connection between salvage logging and Lyme. This might seem like a pretty obscure question, but it is important to know all of the impacts of salvage logging. I had no idea, but it's a pretty controversial topic. Lots of situations can result in land managers choosing to salvage log a portion of land, including fires, storms like with Hurricane Opal, tree diseases, and insect infestations. While some say that removing trees helps the forest recover more quickly, others say that the damage done by the heavy equipment used in salvage logging operations increases erosion, meaning more flooding and difficulty for water treatment plants. With the number of fires, devastating tree disease, very strong storms, and insect attacks increasing in forests all over the world, The impact of salvage logging is going to impact more and more people every day. Knowing that it doesn't change mouse populations helps forest managers make good decisions. Greenbird's paper was funded by the United States Department of Agriculture Southern Research Station. That's it for the science. My mom actually suggested the question for February's episode, which is, Is there a connection between pregnancy and how often you get bit by mosquitoes? A lot of things change in a person's body when they get pregnant, and we're going to find out if any of them actually make you more or less tasty to mosquitoes. Right now, we have topics booked out all the way to May. It's really cool that we have so many people asking interesting questions, But that also means that if you suggest a topic, you might not hear it on the podcast for a few months. That being said, on the tinyvampires.com page, you can go into the blog and click coming soon to see what topics are coming up. And while you're there, you can click a contact us page to suggest a topic of your own. January's Agora podcast of the month is The History of Egypt podcast. This is not your typical history podcast. Dominic emphasizes the culture of ancient Egypt, mixed in with the history of wars, political intrigue, and massive architectural projects that you expect from ancient Egypt. He reads poetry and curses written by ancient peoples. Nothing transports you to a time and a place and helps you identify with the people more than hearing their words read aloud. The last announcement is that we here at Tiny Vampires want to hear from you. Please write a review either for the English or Spanish version on Apple Podcasts. If you do, before the end of February, 
you'll be put in the running to win either a Tiny Vampires t-shirt or a mug. We read every message and change the show according to what's there. So if there's something you love or hate about the show, please tell us and maybe win a shirt. Send me a photo of you in the shirt and I'll share it out on social media. So far, we have photos of tiny vampire shirts in New Zealand, Mexico, Greece, and the U.S., so keep them coming. Thank you for listening. From me, Raven Forrest Ruscalzo. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 